All right. Well, uh, welcome to All Nations. Thank you for joining us on the last Sunday of 2018. Uh, it's really been an incredible year, and I've been doing a lot of like reflecting, looking back, and I've been filled with so much gratitude. I've been so grateful to God, grateful for our church, grateful for our community. And it's not only because, you know, our congregation has been growing in number. That'd be a little, like, shallow of me. But I've been really grateful because I've seen us grow in engagement. I've seen more people uh, volunteering in our outreach efforts. I've, been more, I've seen more people plugging in to our communities. I've seen more people signing up to serve faithfully in our education ministry, uh, community group leading, hospitality team, worship team, even the coffee bar. Uh, I leave every Sunday just thanking Jesus for our coffee bar because without it, I just wouldn't. I know I'm supposed to rely on the spirit, but I do rely on some caffeine and things like that. But I'm just so grateful that we have people that come here every week at like 8 a.m. To, to heat up the espresso machine and like get the water going and all of that stuff. And it's just an amazing thing to see uh, so many of our church members uh, yeah, loving our church, serving our church. So I just want to say thank you. Uh, can we just put our hands together for all of the volunteers that, man, I can't even recognize all of them and give glory to God. All right. Very cool. Um, so last week was Christmas Sunday. Uh, we finished our series on the incarnation of Christ. And so this is kind of like a weird gap. It's in between Christmas, before the new year, 2019. So I was like, what do I preach during this time? And so I had two options. One was just to preach a random one-off sermon, right? Or B, it was to continue the series we were doing before. So before we did our Christmas series, uh, I was teaching through the Gospel of Mark, and we had made it all the way up to Mark chapter 12. And so I was like, you know what? We're just going to go back to Mark chapter 12. And so that's where we're at. If it feels a little out of place, that's where we were before Christmas, and, uh, and then we'll get back into it in 2019 through the Gospel of Mark. Now, um, our passage today, it's a well-known story about a poor widow who makes a beautiful, a profound offering to God in the temple. It's a short passage, and it's actually really easy to overlook. But I want to let you know that, that our passage in Mark chapter 12 holds a very important place in the whole structure, in the whole story of Mark. It's actually the final message of Jesus' public ministry. It's the final message of Jesus' public ministry before he goes into a series of like private conversations and interactions with his disciples, before he experiences the passion, the suffering, and death on the cross and his resurrection. And so Mark chapter 12 ends his public ministry. It began in chapter 1. His public ministry began in chapter 1 when he goes to Peter. When he goes to James and John, those fishermen by the sea, and he invites them to leave everything behind and come follow me. Jesus makes this call to discipleship, not only to this fisherman, but to everyone. And this is the beginning of his public ministry. And here in our passage, we have the ending of his public ministry. One commentator, he called this story of the widow's offering the keystone in Mark's arc of faith. I really like that wording, the keystone, the cornerstone, right, of Mark's arc of faith. Mark is teaching us what it means to follow Jesus what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And here, let's just get into the word of God. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. Trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of his holy word. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. 
Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Amen. The word of the Lord. Man, how do you respond to that passage? How does that make you feel? If we're honest, uh, we don't really know what to do with a passage like this. If we're honest, it kind of makes us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable because at first reading, it seems like Jesus is telling us that we need to like just empty out our bank accounts, liquidate all of our assets and give them to God and then God will be pleased with us. Then we will honor and glorify him. Trouble is, I still have bills to pay, right? I still have a mortgage that's due every month and I have car payments and school loans and a family to take care of. As much as that like one-time extravagant offering would be, it would kind of like wreck my life and, and I actually don't want to do it, right? I actually don't want to liquidate all of my assets, give them to the church and then figure out what happens next. We don't really want to do that. Here's the second thing that happens then. If, if we say, okay, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not telling us to just sell everything or, or empty everything out and just give it to God. If that's not what he's saying, then the question then comes, well, how much are we supposed to give, right? How much is enough? Have you ever wondered that? How much is enough? If, created, if we've created budgets and give according to that, and I hope that you guys have done that as responsible adults, you start budgeting your finances. You start thinking about what, has to, what comes in and what has to go out, right? And I know my wife and I, we've done that. And so we have our tithes budgeted in. After, you know, it's part of our mortgage, our car payments, all of that stuff. It's part of a I have an Excel sheet, right? I'm ESTJ. I have an Excel sheet with the Lee family budget, right? And that's changing and X, Y, and Z. And so, like, and so if you're responsible, you're, you're doing that. But then the question here comes up, is that really enough? Am I one of these kind of like rich people in the temple who are giving out of abundance, right? Giving out of abundance, not out of like sacrifice, not out of like full devotion. How much is enough? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever asked that? Well, I hope to answer kind of these two questions for us as we work through our text today. Now, I also want to say one more thing, especially to those who may think that the church is always after your money. Uh, Me personally, I just want to tell you as sincerely as I can, I'm not after your money. I don't work on commission, right? So even after this sermon, if there's a lot of offering that comes in, my paycheck stays exactly the same, okay? I am not a salesman. I'm not here to like get your money. I get no benefit out of that. More importantly, though, God is not after your money. He's after your heart, okay? He's not after your money. He's after your heart. But here's the problem. The reality is that for many of us, money is at the center of our hearts. Money is our treasure. Money has captured our hearts. Money is where too many of us find our security. It's where we find our significance. It's where we find our approval, Just ask anyone who at the end of this year didn't get a bonus from their company. Do you feel affirmed? Do you feel valued? Do you feel significant at your company? And if you didn't get a bonus, you'd probably say no, right? Or did you get a raise for 2019? How did that make you feel? 
If you didn't get a raise, you probably feel pretty upset because you're like, now I'm making less because of inflation and cost of living adjustments. You don't feel significant. You don't feel secure. You don't feel approved and valued. Why? Because of money. And yet for many of us, that torments us. Jesus is after our hearts, and that's why he talks about money, because he knows that for too many of us, that's where our hearts are. The title of today's message is A Beautiful Offering. A Beautiful Offering. And as we work through the text, get ready, guys. I have only two points, not three. Two points. I know. God, wow. Curveball at the end of 2018. Two points. And the first thing that we're going to look at, we're going to look at our motive for offering. Our motive for giving. Okay? Uh, and the second thing that we're going to look at are, what are the marks of a beautiful offering? How can we identify it? How can we see it? And hopefully, how can we practice this in our own life? So the motive and the marks of a beautiful offering. Our passage begins with Jesus in the temple. And there's an area in the uh, outer area called the treasury, right? It's in the courtyard where the women were uh, worshiping God, and uh, he's at the treasury. And Jesus is watching people give their offerings to God. He's unnoticed. They don't recognize that he's there watching him, and, and they don't realize this, but he is observing them. He's noticing them. The temple is packed. And the reason why the temple is packed is because it's Passover, and so many, many of Israel has descended into Jerusalem, the holy city of God, to give God their worship. And the temple is packed. And Jesus, he's not just observing the amount that people are giving. He's observing their motives. Okay? He sees the amounts, but he's more concerned with their hearts, their motives. Now, we just finished uh, Christmas. And in our secular culture, Christmas is the season of Santa. And Santa is the ultimate watcher. Right? Santa Claus is coming to town, and so he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness' sake, because Santa Claus is coming. And our culture, we've actually evolved. We've evolved this tradition with something called Elf on the Shelf. Anyone do Elf on the Shelf at home? No? Anyways, I'm not here to shame you guys. But anyways, so Elf on the Shelf, it's this kind of more new tradition. And here's the thing. You adopt one of Santa's elves, and he comes into your home. And this elf is a scout. And the scout sees everything that's going on in the house, whether the kids have been naughty or nice. And at night, the elf goes back to Santa and reports, reports everything that the kids are doing, whether they've been good, whether they've been bad. And then in the next morning, the elf moves. He might have started off in the living room, but the next day he's in the kitchen because the elf is moving. It's, it's amazing, right? In my opinion, though, he's not really a scout. He's a snitch, right? This elf is a snitch. And if I were a kid, I was told to get rid of the elf, right? Because snitches get stitches, right? But the elf is a reminder to our children that someone is watching. Now, uh, in our culture, we as adults, uh, we don't, we don't want to be watched. We don't like that. You ever been in a restaurant and someone's just staring at you, right? You're like, Eyes? Come on. Like, personally, you're invading my personal space. So, but here's the funny thing. We don't mind watching our kids, right? So we have, like, video cameras and things like that. We're observing our kids and our babies. But we don't want to be watched as adults. We value our privacy. That's why there's incognito mode for Google, right? Uh, some even, like, cover up their laptops and, and uh, the, the front-facing uh, camera lens on their phones because they don't want to be observed or watched, Right? Um, crazy story, my, my dad for Christmas, weirdest Christmas present ever, right? He bought me and my wife a bidet, 
Do you know what a bidet is? Right? It's that thing that shoots water up the rear. Anyways, and so I, I didn't ask for it. I didn't talk about it. Never in my life have I searched for a bidet online. He bought it for me the very next day on Amazon. Bidets for you. And I was like, oh my God, Amazon is watching me. I felt violated, right? I was like, man, I have no privacy. This is an issue, okay? We want our privacy. We value our privacy. Here's the reality. Before God, there's no privacy. There's no privacy before God. He's omniscient and he's omnipresent. That means he knows everything, right? And he's everywhere. Whether you and I know it or not, he is. He sees and he knows, whether we accept it or not, whether we recognize him or not, our lives are being lived before the face of God. The Latin phrase for this is coram Deo, okay? We live before the face of God. We are accountable to him. He's watching over us. This is why King David in Psalm 139, he writes, where can I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I descend, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. David knows that his life is Coram Deo, before the face of God. There's no running from him. There's no hiding from him. And his conclusion at the end of the psalm is so wise for us to consider as God is watching us, as Jesus is watching us. David surrenders to this truth. He embraces the vision of God. And he says, God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do you see what David does? He says, God, you see everything, you know everything. There's no running from you. So God, just here, here I am. Search me. I acknowledge that I am a sinner. I acknowledge that I have fallen short. God, have mercy on me and lead me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Now, let me tie this into our message and the topic of giving. What would it look like for God to search our hearts when it comes to money? What would it look like for God to do an audit of our stewardship? We'd have to ask, where's our money all going? What do we spend it on? Have you ever asked your wife that or asked yourself that? You're like, oh my God, we are dual income, no kids. We should be saving so much. That was me for the first five years of my marriage. Dual income, no kids. It's an awesome time, right? And I'd be like, where is all our money going, right? Well, one commentator wrote this. You can't fake stewardship. A person can for a short while fake prayer. You can fake Bible study. You can fake your Christianity by going to church and attending all these events and so on, but you can't fake what your checkbook reveals. I love that. It's so true. You know, we could sit here, we can close our eyes, kind of sway a little, especially good, good father. It's in nice and like six, right? We can raise our hands, close our eyes, sing our songs. We can fake it till we make it. We really can. But you know what we can't fake? We cannot fake stewardship. You cannot fake what your checkbook reveals. Brothers and sisters, what does your checkbook reveal about you? About what you value? What is worth your spending, right? Does your checkbook say that you love your homes, your possessions, food, your recreation, your entertainment more than God? 
You see, there are so many Christians in the church that say, I care about global missions. I believe in the Great Commission. I believe in in the value of church planning and going to the ends of the earth. Here's the question. Do you support any missionaries? Do you care about missions if you don't support missionaries? Can you say that we care for the poor if we don't give to the poor? That you care about those who are distressed, those who are the least of our community in our city, if you don't offer any charity, any support, any tangible expression of concern for them? Can we say that we love them? Can you say you love the church, that you care for the church if you don't tithe? Honest question. Can you say you do? Right. Jesus tells us you can't. He, he, he sends us on this treasure hunt. He says, follow the treasure trail of money. Right. Follow the treasure trail of money. And where your treasure is, there your heart is. There your heart is. This is the final point that I want to make about our motive for giving. The first is simply this. Our life is lived before God. He sees it. We need to acknowledge this. We need to surrender. We need to embrace the reality that our life is lived out before the face of God. But on the flip side, the other expression of that is our offering then. If that is true, our offering then must be given out of our devotion to him. Now, this may seem really elementary, but I want you to remember today that all that you offer, all that you give is to God. It's not just to people. It's not just to causes. It's not just to churches, organizations, and institutions. It is given to God. It pains me to say this, uh, but my church back at home in Atlanta, it's, going through, it's been going through a long season of conflict. Long season of conflict. Uh, uh, two years ago, uh, the, the, the senior pastor, he died suddenly. He passed away suddenly. And ever since then, for two years, the church has been searching for a new senior pastor. There have been various teams and committees brought up. There's been various kind of steps and processes, things communicated or not failed to communicate to the church. As I've been talking to my father, who is an elder there, I've seen that there's been a lot of conflict, a lot of division, and a lot of sin. And a couple months ago, I was talking with my parents and they were kind of on a side that was very like disgruntled. They felt like they were on the losing end. And they told me that a lot of people were upset and they were planning on withholding their tithes from the church as a form of protest. Have you ever seen a church do that? Have you ever thought of doing that? The church does something you don't like. The leadership goes in a direction that you don't approve of. And so you don't want to give your support, your financial support, your tithe to them. That's what, that was being planned amongst a faction in the church. They're not going to leave the church but out of protest, they're not gonna tithe. I cannot tell you how saddened I was at this news. I reminded my parents, you're not withholding from the church. You're withholding from God. You're not withholding from the church. You're withholding from God. You see, the, the world, the world uses money as leverage. The world uses money as power. The world tries to use money to influence people and exert their will over people. Do you guys get that? That's why in a, in a, in a company, if you own 51% of that company, of the stocks, you have the final say. You have authority. 51% earns you that in a corporation. The world uses money as power, leverage, and influence. 
May it not be so in the church. May it not be so in the church. You and I, we are not accountable to a finance team. We're not accountable to an elder board. You're not accountable to me. You don't have to look at me and say, Pastor Mike, I gave my tithe. Or Pastor Mike, I didn't like your sermon last week, so I'm not gonna tithe this week, right? It's not about me. It's not about how you feel about the church. It's about you and God. You are accountable before God. Whether you are stewarding over the things that he has given you or whether you are hoarding the blessings that he has given you. You're not accountable to me, right? Very important. And I think so many of us in the church, we've forgotten that. We've forgotten that that we're not just giving to people. We're not just giving to the church. We don't give out of loyalty to hashtag ANC family. We give to God. Our worship is to God. Our offering is to God. Our service is to God. And that's expressed through people. But ultimately, we are serving and worshiping and giving to God. It's my prayer for our church. It's my hope. You see, the widow teaches us that. This widow teaches us that because she gave her offering to God through the temple. She put her two copper pennies into the coffers of the temple. And before you were just like, oh, that's good. That's what everyone should do. No, no, no. You need to remember that this was the temple where Jesus entered in and he overthrew the tables. This is the temple where Jesus chased out the money changers with a cord of whips. This is where we see the righteous indignation, the anger of Jesus in full-fledged. Why? Because they had turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. This is the temple full of corruption, full of, full of sin. If anyone had a right to protest and say, you know what, I don't like what you're doing in the temple, it's this place. The widow could have done that, but she doesn't. The widow still gave her offering. She still gave all that she had to live on. Why? Because she knew that she was giving to God. That her giving was an expression of worship and devotion to God, despite a corrupt leadership. Despite a sin-stained house, an earthly place of worship. She understood the worth of God and what it meant to be devoted to him. I hope and pray that you and I would have that same heart. That you wouldn't just give or participate when when you like the, the, the way things are, the status quo of our church, I hope that we would always remember we are accountable to our Lord. And may that be our motive for giving. Let's move to our second point, the marks of a beautiful offering. What does it look like? How, we can, how can we practice this? In our passage, Jesus observes both the offerings of the rich and the poor. We are told that some gave vast sums of money, that they were giving out of abundance, But a poor widow gave two copper coins, two pennies, which was all that she had to live on. The financial offering, the impact of her offering was practically nothing. It was practically nothing. But Jesus makes this shocking conclusion. He's not impressed by the big checks. He's not impressed by the vast sums of money. He says, I truly, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. What does this mean? In purely financial terms, the widow's offering is nearly meaningless compared to the sums of the wealthy donors. Every once in a while, I don't count the offering, our finance team does that, but every once in a while, I hear change, 
right? It's like ching, ching, ching. And I'm like, really? And I, and I see them. They kind of don't know what to do with it. What are they going to do with a couple dimes and some nickels, right? Uh, are you gonna, they're even going to record that. Well, I'm sure that the priests felt the very same way. They're collecting the offering. They're counting, and they see two copper coins, two pennies. To them, it was probably worthless, meaningless. I mean, how can these pennies do anything for the glory of God? How can these pennies have any meaning and value for the temple of God? But in the eyes of God, worth is measured very differently. One commentator, he writes, he says, that which made no difference in the books of the temple is immortalized in the book of life. Just imagine that. We don't know how much these other, these other individuals gave, these rich, we just vast sums of money, that's it. We don't know anything about them, that's it. But Jesus, he honors this woman. He honors her offering, her sacrifice, her devotion. And she is a beautiful example of worship and stewardship for us. Now, everything about this woman, it's described as less. She is less. She's in destitution. First of all, she's a woman in a male-centered culture. Second, she's a widow. She's unmarried. She's incomplete. She's vulnerable. Third, she's poor. It's like the trifecta. You are a woman, widow, and poor. She's without privilege. She's without honor. But Jesus tells us that this woman, who the culture says, you have nothing. You are the least. This woman with less, she has given more. Jesus honors her because her gift has been given in radical faith. She's honored because her offering wasn't out of convenience. It wasn't out of abundance, but it was out of sacrifice and devotion. The Swiss theologian, uh, John Calvin, he's reflecting and writing on this passage, and he has a beautiful quote. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's a little like written in, in old English, but I hope that you guys would follow along. This is what he writes. In two ways, this doctrine is useful. First, for the poor who appear not to have the power of doing good, are encouraged by our Lord not to hesitate to express their affection cheerfully out of their slender means. Second, on the other hand, those who possess greater abundance are reminded that it is not enough if the amount of their giving they if in the amount of their giving they greatly surpass the poor and common people. I love Calvin's insight into our passage. I love that it's countercultural. I love that it reflects the heart of God and the kingdom of God. You see, just because you have little doesn't mean you are powerless to do good. Have you ever thought that? I think there are too many of you who discredit your contribution to the church, your gifts to the church. You look at your offering, you're like, man, this is just a buck. What's the point? Might as well keep it and buy a coffee at the Resolve Coffee Bar, right? This ain't gonna do much for the church. Or you look at your gifts, and you're like, man, I can't, I can't sing or play guitar like the people on the praise team. I'm not an extrovert. Why should I join the hospitality team? I don't have the gift of evangelism. I shouldn't join the missions corps, whatever it might be. And so we look at our, at our gifts, our abilities, our resources, and they are slender. They are thin. And we say, there's no point. God can't use us. He won't. The widow's might. The widow's two pennies tells us otherwise. You are not powerless to do good. In the kingdom of God, the last shall be first. 
And the kingdom of God, the meek, shall inherit the earth. In the kingdom of God, faith like a mustard seed can move mountains. So brothers and sisters, let's not look at ourselves. Let's not look at our resources with the eyes of this world. Let's look at them through the eyes of God. Likewise, the second point that Calvin is making is just because you give a lot doesn't mean that's enough. Here's a question. In your financial contributions to our church, do you treat it like a checklist, a to-do. I know some of us, we're on Easy Tithe, the great app. I love it, right? But we're on auto-recurring, right? And so for me, just like my cell phone bill goes out and my insurance bill goes out, my tithe goes out, right? And it's just like this, this like auto-pay mode. And I'm like, okay, I see the deduction. I see how it goes out. And I feel like my job is done. And Calvin is saying, that's not enough. Just because you give money doesn't make us righteous. Just because we give more than a, than a poor college student, just because we give more than somebody else doesn't make us more righteous. Once again, God doesn't just want your money. He wants your heart. You know who gave? Like, like just so perfectly, so faithfully, so sacrificially. It was the Pharisees. The Pharisees tithed everything they had. They tithed even down to their spices and herbs. Imagine that, Right? You tithe everything down to your spices and herbs. And you know what Jesus says about the Pharisees? He says, you guys are whitewashed tombs. What you give, it's not enough. Not because of quantity, but because of the quality of your heart. What you're giving is not enough because your hearts are far from God. And that's just such a sober reminder for some of us who are regular givers. I want to caution you from being a thoughtless giver from being a convenient giver, right? To really understand what it means to be a devoted giver, a faithful giver. The reality of our passage, it really struck my heart this year as I was conducting membership interviews. And I heard that, uh, that uh, this past kind of cycle, there was a rumor going around that the members' interviews were really intimidating. So people didn't want to go through them. Uh, guys, they're not. They're really gracious, and I love doing them. They're like wonderful pastoral moments, where I can meet with you and hear your testimony and love you and share with you like the vision and direction of our church. Uh, at my previous church, though, I was the elf on the shelf. Uh, and so uh, my pass rate for members' interviews was like 50%. That's crazy, right? Uh, it's like one person, yes. One person, no. But here, I'm the lead pastor at All Nations, so I need to be way more gracious and open. So if you get me for a members' interview, it's going to be good. Okay, it's going to, I give all the tough ones to Pastor DC. And uh, Anyhow, so this past year, uh, I was conducting a member's interview with one of our deaconesses uh, for a young college student. And then the topic of tithing came up. And so we asked, how is your stewardship? Right, how, how are you demonstrating faithfulness as a steward of God's resources? And uh, her face became really somber and really sad. As a college student, she worked some part-time jobs. She didn't have much. She didn't want to be too much of a burden to her parents. So she wasn't, you know, she was just uh, working and, and trying to just take care of herself. And so she wasn't giving to the church. She didn't have much and she just felt like, I, I have to survive in this season, so I'm not giving. And she was afraid that this might disqualify her as a member. And as she shared that, in that moment, I, I sensed God's love for her. I really did. I, I almost started crying 
over a question of tithing. Something's weird, something weird is happening. I'm becoming way more sentimental, right? I almost started crying because I remembered our passage today. I remember the story of the, the widow's might. And I shared with her that, that you don't have to be ashamed that you can't give much. That it's not about the amount that you give that honors God. It's about your heart. It's about your devotion. It's about your faith in God as you give to him. Brothers and sisters, that's so important. You see, the weird thing for us is that we understand that God accepts us by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. We understand that. But then when it comes to giving, when it comes to our service, we, have this, we shift back into works. And we think that God will only accept, it if, accept us if it is good enough, if it's prepared the right way, right? If it's perfected, and if it's kind of flawed, and if it's inadequate, and if it's weak, we're like, man, this isn't good enough for God. He won't accept it. And so we get ashamed, ashamed of our offering, ashamed of our service, ashamed of our gifts. But brothers and sisters, God receives not only you, he receives your service. He receives your offerings in grace. Here's the reality. It's never good enough. It's never good enough. Whether it's one, 10, a thousand, a million dollars, none of that is enough to buy the favor and the blessing of God. He gives that freely to his beloved children. So one, how much is enough? How much is enough? It's enough when you give in love. It's enough when you give in faith. It's enough when you give in true devotion to our God. Practically speaking, what are the practical marks of a beautiful offering that we can make to God? First of all, and I've already mentioned this, it's love. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. This is a great counterbalance to our passage today because we might be thinking, oh man, I just need to give it all up. Give it all up and God will bless me and love me. And Paul says, whoa, 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 you need to check that. It's not about the amount. It's not about the radical nature of your sacrifice. It's about love. What you do must be out of love for God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second mark of a beautiful offering is faith. Faith. In verse 44 of our passage, as we finish Mark tells us, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. That is faith. Depending not on those two pennies, depending not on herself, not in the security of money, but depending in the security and provision of her God. Brothers and sisters, true giving, it requires faith. The author of Hebrews reminds us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Here's the thing. When you and I feel like we don't have enough, we're tempted to hold on to everything. When we feel the scarcity in our lives, scarcity of finance, scarcity of resources, we don't become more generous. We don't become givers. We become takers. Have you guys ever felt that? Right? But the widow's example shows us this. Even when we feel like we don't have enough, we can and we should still give to God in faith. Why? Because he is our provider. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Your daily bread doesn't come 
from your job, your boss, your company. Your daily bread comes from God and God alone. Here's the sad thing for you and I. Many of us, we've never given in faith. We've only given out of comfort. We've only given out of surplus. We've only given out of abundance. And in those moments where we feel stretched and strained, we don't give, we grip. I wanna tell you a quick story about a, a friend of mine at my previous church back in 2008. Uh, he was an older brother. He had a family, he, he had children, and um, he was living in the Inland Empire. And if you know anything about 2008, that's when the housing crisis struck our nation. And the Inland Empire was the most devastated county. Riverside County was the most devastated county by the housing crisis. Well, he lived there. He had stretched himself to buy his forever home. He tried to grow his business right before the housing crash. And this brother who was once very generous with the church, very generous with others, suddenly was in radical scarcity. He didn't want to lose his home. He didn't want to lose his business. And so he made a decision. I'm not tithing anymore. I can't. I can't afford to tithe anymore. So for week after week, month after month, for a full year, he made the decision not to give to God because he had to take care of his own. For many of us, that makes sense. How do you think the story ended? Now, this wasn't a punishment from God. This was just a reality. He still lost his home. He still lost his business. And he told me, and we talked, he he learned a lesson, a great lesson of faith. He's not in control. He's not in control. And he felt so guilty that he was withholding from God, thinking that he knew better, that he could save his family, that he could save his home, and, and it would be at the cost of his biblical stewardship. Now, I'm not saying he should have kept the same amount of tithing. Everything could have been adjusted, but to make a decision to give zero to God because you think you need to take care of your family. Brothers and sisters, where's the faith? And ever since then, his faith has grown. And he's, yeah, anyway, so he's doing okay. So he's not a wreck now. And he's, anyways, but um, I just found that to be such an important lesson. Even for me, as I think about my family and as I think about my future, there are temptations that even I, as a pastor, feel to take care more of myself and my future than to practice generosity and stewardship. Here's the other thing about faith. If you've never given in faith, if you've only given because you have enough and, you're, and, and, and all of your outgoing payments are taken care of and everything is safe and secure, if you've only given out of surplus, then you will never experience what it means for God to provide for you. That makes sense. If you've never given in faith, you will never experience God's supernatural provision for you in your life because you have always been your provider. You have always been your own security blanket. And brothers and sisters, I, I wanna tell you that there's something powerful that happens to us when we give in faith and then we receive in faith. The third thing that I wanna share about the mark, right? Or a mark of a beautiful offering. It's cost. We must count the cost. There is a cost to our giving to God. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, there's a famous story of David's great sin. Not David and Bathsheba, but this is like the next one. He's already a king and he was a ruler. And in 2 Samuel chapter 24, he counts his army. He counts the fighting men and God didn't command him to. 
He didn't, he didn't call him to do that. And so this was a grave sin. It was part of David's pride and his arrogance. And as a result, God sent a plague to David's army. 70,000 fighting men died as a result of this sin. And the prophet Gad, he goes up to David and he says, you need to buy a threshing floor. You need to build an altar. You need to make an offering to God for your sin, a sacrifice to God for your sin. And David says, okay. And so he meets this man named Aruna. And Aruna sees what's happening to David. He sees what's happening to Israel. And he says, David, I will give the land to you for free. In fact, David, I will give you the animals, the cattle. You need cows, you need rams, you need sheep, whatever it might be. I will give those things to you and you can give those things as an offering to God. You know what David said? This is what David says in verse 24. No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. So David brought, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And he makes this offering to God. The plague lifts and his army is saved. Brothers and sisters, there is a cost that we must incur as we give to God. If you want it to be light, if you want it to be convenient, if you want it to be easy, you will not be following in the footsteps of the saints of scripture. There was a cost. Now, there's an adage that has floated around in the church all too often. When we talk about giving and sacrifice, uh, people say, man, how much did you give? And someone might say, you gotta give till it hurts. Have you ever heard that? I hate it. Yeah. First of all, because I don't wanna hurt, right? First of all, I don't wanna hurt. And secondly, it just comes off like Christians were these like kind of like, like, like masochists, that like, like the, the real Christianity is like hurting and, and suffering or whatever it might be. Uh, I think it's unhelpful. That adage, you gotta give until it hurts. I think what's better and more biblical, I think we need to give according to worth, okay? I want you to give according to worth. How much is enough? How much should you give? You should give according to worth. I had a friend who ate at this famous restaurant called the French Laundry. Anyone heard of the French Laundry? I hear a meal there can go from 500 to $1,000. One meal, right? One meal, and I asked him, how was it? He said it was worth it. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? And it made me interested. I was like, oh my God, I want to eat. Well, like, like, I'll never pay it, right? I'll never, if you want to take me and make me a plus one, I will go with you, right? But that just intrigued me. You're going to pay that much for that meal and it was worth it. It says so much about that restaurant, so much about that meal, so much about those chefs, does it not? Brothers and sisters, is Christ and his kingdom worth it? Is the gospel to the nations worth it? Is taking the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth worth it? Then support missionaries. Go on missions. Support missions agencies. Don't spend every dollar you have on yourself. Is it worth it to care for the poor? Is it worth it to bring hope to the hopeless in our local community, in our city, in our country, then give. Be generous. Be charitable. And these are all assessments that we need to make. Um, you guys know, like, I, I have a kid coming in uh, two weeks. His name's going to be Seth. Uh, I'm shook, right? Yay! 
I'm really excited, uh, but I'm also really anxious. Because here's the thing, just because I have a kid doesn't mean I get more money, right? Every parent knows that. We're like, oh, I got a kid, I have two kids, but my pay is still like in the same tier, right? Uh, you get some tax benefits, and so that's cool too. But, so, I'm ESTJ, and while my wife is making the baby, you know, growing eyeballs and all of that stuff, I am going over our budget. And I'm going over our numbers, and I have an Excel spreadsheet that, like, documents everything. And the big kicker for me is daycare. I don't have enough money for daycare. I'm not asking for it. Don't be, oh, Pastor Mike. No. I'm just saying straight up. In our current budget, I don't have enough money for daycare. And so I'm looking at everything that we're spending. And I look at our tithe. And here's the thing. If we didn't tithe, I could send my kid to the best daycare in Pasadena. I really could, and I've thought about it, but I would never do it, right? But why? I, I started looking at our tithe, and I, was, and I started realizing I had this nonchalant, like committed, faithful, like regular, this goes out every month, every paycheck, X, Y, and Z, I'm giving, but I just didn't think much about it. But in this last season, I started thinking about everything I could buy if we just didn't tithe. My car's 11 years old. I could buy an awesome new car, Right? I could save more for retirement, right? We could have bought more square footage than our little thousand square foot condo in Pasadena. We could have bought a bigger place if we just didn't tithe. Best childcare for my kids, more meals, more vacation, all of that stuff. But here's my prayer lately. I look at that, I look at my tithe, and I say, God is worth it. He's worth it. To give to him, to practice stewardship for him, for his kingdom, for his glory. He is worth it far more than anything I could spend on myself, on my family, awesome golf clubs, or whatever it might be. And I just hope that you guys would do that. If you are a regular giver, don't just give out of routine. Would you give and look at it and pray over it and say, God, you are worth it. I want to give joyfully. I want to give cheerfully. I want to give out of devotion to you, out of love and out of faith. Once again, I'm not here to try to get you to up your tithe, but I'm here to make sure that as we give, we give with our hearts because that's what God wants for us. Brothers and sisters, as we close out this year, would we realize that Jesus has given us everything? He's given all of himself. He's loved you and I to the point of death. There is security in him because he's given everything to us. We can give everything to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us so much in our lives. All of the resources you have called us to steward over, would you remind us that we are not owners, we are stewards. You have entrusted these things to us that we would live for your glory and for our good. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be intentional as we give to you, that we would do so in love and in faith and in joy. And would you put the cross of Christ at the center of our hearts, upon the throne of our hearts, God, helping us to realize that you alone are worthy of our worship. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray, amen.